Chapter Eight of The Last Entry by William Clark Russell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight, In Search. In the year of this story, old leisure was still going to sea. He flourished as pleasantly upon the ocean as amidst the hens and dunghills, the milkmaids and dairies of the Poyser farmyard. He brought his main topsail to the mast without reluctance when there was anything to be seen or talked to. He went on board the stranger and dined with him, invited the stranger in return, then leisurely proceeded. There was no prompt dispatch to speak of, no urgency. The wind was the prevailing condition of the immense distances which the wooden keel traversed. Old leisure kept his eye to windward, and hauled out his bowlines. But it was a time of ambling, of dozing, and of whistling for winds until too much came. Only in such a time as this, now dealt with, could we conceive a large, full-rigged ship, homeward bound from India, full of impatient hearts, hove to, with a derelict schooner within easy hail, and the commander taking plenty of time to reason about her with a gentleman who was infinitely concerned in her unexpected, astounding apparition and log-book narrative. The thought of Miss Vanderholt being at the mercy of a crew of mutinous ruffians is unbearable, exclaimed Captain Parry. What is to be done? Advise me in the name of God, Captain. You know, you know, I have told you she was to be my wife. You're an old sailor. For God's sake, counsel me. If I could be sure that they had made off in their boat and were still afloat in her, answered the Captain, I should know how to advise you. But if they have been received on board a ship, then I don't see what can be done. For in what direction may that ship be heading? Enough if your young lady should be safe, sir. Supposing her to be on board a ship, I have no doubt of your hearing good news of her in course of time after your arrival in England. He opened the cabin door and called to one of the stewards. My compliments to the chief officer and ask him to come to me. Mr. Mulready quickly presented himself. We have some notion, said Captain Barrington, addressing his mate, whilst he laid his hand upon the log of the Mowbray, that the crew of the schooner may have left her in their boat, taking the young lady with them. "'Send a couple of hands. Don't trouble the young gentleman,' said he, with a supercilious smile, vanishing almost as it appeared from his firm lips. "'But a couple of sharp hands to the royal mastheads. Give one of them this glass.' He handed Mr. Mulready a binocular. "'Let the other take the ship's telescope aloft. I want the sea carefully swept.' Make them understand that they must creep in their search to the very verge, for how far off is a boat visible. But they might sight the gleam of her lug-sail. Mr. Mulready took the glasses and went swiftly out. Captain Parry stood at the open window, listening to what was passing, straining his sight also with consuming passions of dread, blind desire, helpless wrath, at the star-blue line of the sea that swept the brilliance of the heavens within little more than a league. The captain of the ship went to a locker, and took out a chart of the Atlantic. He spread it, and called to Captain Parry. The officer turned, and eagerly stepped to the chart. He saw zigzag prickings or lines upon the white sheet, as though somebody had been trying to represent flashes of lightning. Each line terminated in a little dotted circle. These were the runs, but then these were also the doldrums, and the motive power of that ship, the Alfred, lay in the breeze that in the doldrums blows in the delicate cat's paw that scarcely has power to run a shiver into the glazed breast. "'This was our situation at noon yesterday,' said the commander, 
putting his finger upon the northernmost little circle. There is no land for leagues, as you may observe. What are those rocks? observed Captain Parry, peering. St. Paul's Island, a horrible hornet's nest of black fangs, entirely out of the boat's reach. I am not sure that I ever heard of a boat effecting a landing. Anyone cast ashore there must perish. There's nothing to eat or drink. It is the desolation of hell, added the commander, with a note of religious fervour in his speech. And a dreadful surf, like a nightmare of storm, raves day and night around those rocks. What is to be done? said Captain Parry, lifting himself erect from the chart. If they are in a boat, they cannot be far distant. They have not long left the schooner, but every stroke of the oar carries them further away, and renders the search more hopeless. The search? exclaimed the commander, in a note of inquiry and surprise. I don't mean in this ship, of course, said the officer, speaking with agitation and very quickly. A clipper schooner lies close at hand. If you will lend me a navigator and a few hands, we will sweep the sea taking this mark, he continued, putting his finger upon the chart, as our base, and hunting with masthead lookouts, and fierce fires burning by night, in circles whose circumference or diameter I should leave to the judgment of the mate in charge. The commander began to slowly pace his cabin. Once he paused, and gazed with a face of earnest gravity at the sea that came brimming to the counter in a sheet of winding lines, the light swathes of the tropic calm, the oily gleam, the trouble of some stream of current twinkling in diamonds. Captain Parry eyed him with anxiety. He dreaded a discussion that might kill the hope that had suddenly been born in him. A tap on the door caused the commander to start. Mr. Mulready entered. "'The masthead men have been working hard with their glasses, sir, and report nothing in sight.' "'How is the schooner?' "'Forlorn, but safe, sir.' Take a boat and go aboard, and make a further thorough examination of her, and overhaul her stores, all as smartly as may be, sir. This gentleman has an idea, and I don't know but that it might prove practicable," said the commander. And, as Mr. Mulready left the cabin, the captain of the ship turned to Parry, and asked him to follow him on deck. On the commander emerging, the third mate approached and touched his cap, and exclaimed, "'When I said there was no living thing aboard that schooner, sir, I should have reported a small coop full of cocks and hens, all alive, and very hungry and thirsty. I fed them with some rice I found in the galley, and poured a quantity of water into their troth. He saluted and marched off. "'In the face of Miss Vanderholt's last entry,' said the captain to Parry, "'we don't want live cocks and hens to tell us that that vessel has been recently abandoned.' She lay softly lifting upon the light swell, a beautiful helpless fabric. The shudders which ran through her canvas were like the distress of something living. She had slewed somewhat, bringing her jibbooms to bear upon the ship. In the blind, hopeless way of abandoned craft, she was posture-making for help. The excitement aboard the Alfred was very great indeed. The mastheading of the men, the pictures of their little bodies high in the heavens, sweeping the deep with binoculars and telescope, had immensely stimulated the passions of curiosity and wonder. What did the captain expect the sailors to see upon that vast girdle of brine, that rolled flawless to the glorious stroke of the sun? It was known that the young lady who had been on board the schooner was betrothed to Captain Parry. Could romance be carried beyond this? The ladies fluttered in talk, the gentlemen growled. "'I'm keeping a diary,' said a major, with great dyed, well-curled whiskers, to the surgeon of the ship, "'of this voyage home, as I did of the voyage out.' 
and I shall probably publish it, sir. But this incident will not be credited. Sages in their day have believed in ghosts, and laughed to scorn a report of earthquakes. I do not see why this incident should not be believed, said the doctor. It is too probable, for the sea, sir. If you want a sea fact to be accepted, state that which a sailor will know to be impossible. Parry looks as haggard as if he had been up for a week of nights, said the doctor. Many eyes were fixed upon him, as he stood beside the master of the ship, viewing the schooner and talking. The ship forward was a gem of an ocean-piece, with the smoke of her galley chimney going straight up, the sailors, it was their breakfast-time, lounging in the cool of the shade of the jibs, with hook-pots and biscuits, and pipes of tobacco, and the great foresail, white as milk, floated motionless from its long yard. Some soldiers in white clothes were seated upon the booms, in the wake of the draught which would stir from that vast square of sail when the weak swell of the sea put a faint pulse of life into it. The sky was sublimely lofty, with the light blue brilliance of the tropic zone, not a cloud to depress it to the sight, and all the air was gone. Captain Barrington and Captain Parry stood together at the mizzen shrouds, looking at the schooner, conversing, and waiting for the return of the mate. The passengers very respectfully gave them a wide berth. "'No,' says Captain Barrington presently. "'I shall have no objection, sir. I am to be influenced by humanity in this business. My owners cannot and will not object,' he added, as if thinking aloud. "'We shall be saving a valuable yacht. Mr. Blundell is a very efficient young officer, quite experienced enough to take charge, and he will receive certain instructions from me, sir, for we must define the area of sea to be searched, and the time to be taken. He looked at the schooner thoughtfully. "'She is under two hundred tons,' said he. "'Mr. Blundell and four men and a boy should suffice. I can spare no more.' "'I am no sailor, but I can pull and haul,' said Captain Parry. "'I can do a man's bit. What time would you limit us to?' "'I should wish to be a little elastic. There's no wind here to depend upon,' answered the commander. I will see Mr. Blundell in my cabin after breakfast, and explain my ideas. Presently the breakfast bell rang. The captain and the passengers went below. Captain Parry asked that a biscuit and a cup of tea should be brought to him on deck. He gazed round upon the spacious sea, and the tranquillity of it soothed and calmed his inward, hidden, fuming impatience. He knew that the stagnation that held the Alfred motionless would keep the boat so, unless the men rowed, which was not very conceivable, for sailors do not commonly row when the distance they have to traverse runs into hundreds of miles. If they had been taken aboard a ship, she, too, must be lying becalmed. Yet one black dread ever haunted Captain Parry's fancies. He was going to seek the boat. Had Miss Vanderholt accompanied the men? Would they carry with them a living witness to their piracy and murders? Had not she been murdered before the schooner was abandoned? It was ten o'clock when the mate returned from the Mowbray. All this while the sea remained satin-smooth. The sun, soaring high, burnt fiercely. The paint bubbled in blisters, the pitch ran in soft soap, and the whole light of the schooner's canvas poured under her in quivering sheets of quicksilver. Mr. Mulready was dark with dirt and sweat, and looked like a man who has passed a week in stowing a ship's hold. Captain Parry stood in the gangway to receive him, and the mate's immediate inquiry was for the commander. He was closeted with Mr. Blundell. "'What news can you give me?' said the military officer, 
grasping the dry-minded mate by the arm and looking beseechingly into his face. "'There's just plenty of stores and fresh water,' answered Mr. Mulready, "'enough to last a small crew six months. Her afterhold is rich in the eating line. There are about two dozen cocks and hens.' "'I don't mean that!' exclaimed Parry wildly. "'Did you find no hint of the fate of the young lady?' "'My answer must be,' answered the mate, with a certain formal, sympathetic gravity, "'that nothing is alive on yonder vessel, saving a few cocks and hens.' The captain made his appearance, followed by Mr. Blundell. "'I have arranged with the third officer,' said he, walking straight up to Captain Parry and the mate, "'that he shall take charge of the yacht and search for the boat. There can be no hurry whilst this clock calm lasts. Still, I dare say you'll be glad to go on board.' "'I'm mad to go on board,' answered Captain Parry. "'Get your luggage together, then, sir. Mr. Blundell will provide the schooner with a couple of pistols out of the arms-chest and the necessary ammunition. If you fall in with the boat, remember there are eight seamen, rendered desperate by murder. You will be but seven. The possibility is faint, the chance is smallest,' the captain muttered in a dying voice. "'I thank you for your foresight,' said Parry and he went hastily to his cabin to pack up. The mate told Captain Barrington that there were plenty of rockets and port-fires aboard the schooner. A fireball by night might bring the boat to the yacht. He then produced a piece of paper, and gave the commander an idea of the quantity of stores in the little vessel. "'They'll want nothing from us, then,' said Captain Barrington. "'However, since the mutiny appears to have been owing to the rottenness of the food, sling a couple of casks of our beef into the boat.' It was eleven o'clock when all was ready for Captain Parry to go on board the Mowbray. Four men and a boy had volunteered as crew, and when the boat was freighted she lay deep alongside with seamen's chests, luggage, casks of beef, and human beings. The passengers made a tender farewell of this singular, most romantic leave-taking in mid-ocean. They pressed forward to shake Captain Parry by the hand. Some hoped that the blessing of God would attend his search. More than one lady raised a handkerchief to her eyes. As the boat shoved off, a hearty cheer broke from the whole length of the vessel. The boat reached the side of the Mowbray, and all that was to be received on board was hoisted up. Captain Parry breathed deep, and wore a wildness in his looks, whilst he stood for a few minutes gazing round about him. Of course he remembered the little ship perfectly well the delightful cruise he had taken in her with Violet and her father a little while before he returned to India. He looked and began to realize the brutal scene as the girl had sketched it in that last entry. It was hard to think of his immensely wealthy friend Mr. Vanderholt meeting a mean base end at the hands of a brutal Ratcliffe sailor. What had they done with Violet? The little ship seemed to smell of human blood. The airy graces of her heights, the beauty of all that was choice and finished betwixt her rails, seemed to have departed. Wherever murder stalks, the spirit of horror, attended by the ghost of neglect and decay, follows. They break the windows of the house. They command the spiders to build. The dirty little building in which the body was found is going to pieces. The alley up which the body was dragged is of a sickly green, with a growth of unwholesome grass. It was so with this yacht, this beautiful fabric, the Mowbray. The wizardry of murder had changed her to the sight of Parry. He cursed her with all his heart as the cause of the destruction of his sweetheart and Mr. Vanderholt, and, wondering what the devil had brought her so far from home, 
whether it might be possible that father and daughter had been sailing to India to meet him, that they might return together in the same vessel. He put his hand upon the fire-hot companionhood and descended the ladder. He searched as the two mates had searched, and, of course, found more than they. He beheld in a cabin memorials of his sweetheart, her dresses, her hats, a veil and a pair of gloves lay in her cot. One glove was still bulked with the impress of her hand, as though she had but just now drawn it off in a hurry, and cast it down. He peered narrowly. The cabin was a charming little boudoir. He witnessed no suggestions of violence. Nothing appeared to have been disturbed. He sought for marks of blood, then thought to himself, if she is murdered, they did not kill her with a knife, they drowned her. He stayed for half an hour in this cabin, then entered the adjoining berth, which had been Mr. Vanderholt's. He found nothing to help him here. The old gentleman had been eccentric. He had believed he loved the life of the forecastle. God help him! And he had illustrated his idle imagination of fondness by causing his berth to be rendered as uncomfortable as possible. Parry was disturbed in his investigations of this berth by a bustle in the cabin. He looked out, and saw a couple of sailors coming down with his luggage. "'Tumble those traps in here,' said he. "'Are we moving?' "'It is a fact, sir,' said one of the men, who was a Swede. "'A little gentle wind has begun to blow, and Alfred is going home.' "'Home? I do not quite understand,' exclaimed Captain Parry. He said no more, however, to the men, and went on deck to look about him. An air of heaven blowing out of the boundless blue, with not a cloud in the sky to show you where it came from, was wrinkling the wide waters into a thrilling azure, and under the sun the glory was blinding. They had trimmed sail on the schooner, a trifling matter. A hand was at the helm. Mr. Blundell stood beside him, looking into the little binnacle. On the bow was the Alfred, with her foretop sail full, every cloth stirless, so soft was the cradling of that sea. Her yards were braced forwards, and she seemed to lean. She floated upright in silent majesty, nevertheless her trucks plumb with the zenith, and, as she gained way, her short scope of wake sparkled like a shoal of herrings under her counter. Mr. Blundell was a stout, hearty young sailor, about two and twenty years of age. He had that sort of face which is often met at sea under both flags, perfectly hairless, fleshy, permanently tinctured by the roasting fires and the drying-in gales and frosts of ocean travel. He was looking at the compass of the schooner when Captain Parry approached. Perhaps he sought for a hint or two in gear that did not lead like a ship's, and canvas that was not shaped for square yards. At a motion from Captain Parry, he drew away from the helmsman. "'I am at a loss,' said the captain, looking at the ship under the shelter of his hand. "'Is the Alfred going home?' "'Certainly, sir,' answered Mr. Blundell. "'We've dipped our farewell. We're now on our own hook.' "'Then I mistook. I supposed when Captain Barrington talked of limiting us to time that he intended we should return to him here,' said Captain Parry. The young mate smiled. "'His notion in limiting us to time,' said he, "'was that we should not run the quest into a hopeless job. There should be a limit.' "'Of course, a reasonable limit,' said Parry. "'What is it?' It has been left to my judgment, sir, and I'm willing to be governed by you. Thanks, Blundell. Captain Parry, pronouncing this sentence with warmth and emotion, stepped to the binnacle and looked at the card. You are holding the schooner northwest, said he. You have a reason? We must head on one course or another, answered Blundell. 
I propose, with your leave, to carry out Captain Barrington's ideas. He has sketched me a circular course. I'll compass it off on the chart below presently, and you shall form your own opinion. Loose the square canvas, my lads, he sang out, abruptly breaking from Captain Parry. The captain lent a hand to pull and haul. He dragged to the music of the salt throats at the sheets and halyards. The breeze freshened in a steady gushing. The ocean was a miracle of laughing light. Already you heard the snore of foam at the cutwater and the stealthy hiss of its passage aft. The Alfred was growing small and square in the blue distance. She was feeling the breeze now, and her pale and shapely shadow leaned as she headed, with an occasional dim flash from her wet black side into the far northern recess. Captain Parry went below, and returned on deck with the binocular which he had observed in Mr. Vanderholt's cabin. The main rigging of the Mowbray was rattled down to the height of the lower masthead. The captain got into the shrouds, and made his way to the cross-trees. Higher, being no sailor, he durst not crawl. With one hand he grasped a topmast shroud that was sweating tar. With the other he lifted his glasses, and searched the sea till his eyes swelled and throbbed in their sockets. When he descended he said to the mate, "'I have wondered why the men should have left the schooner afloat. Don't they usually scuttle vessels in affairs of this sort?' "'I heard the captain and the second officer talk this matter over,' said Mr. Blundell. The second mate thought that the villains knew what they were about when they left the schooner floating. She would be met with and boarded. They'd find nothing to give them an idea of what had happened. So she'd be carried away to a port as a mystery, and that would be giving the men a better chance than had they scuttled her. Why? Always one of the men who've been concerned in bloody business of this sort finds his way to a hospital. He lies alongside another man and gabbles. The second mate seemed to think that if one of the men of this yacht turned up at a hospital and gabbled, less would be made of what he said if the schooner had been towed into port as a mystery than had she been sunk. For my part, added Mr. Blundell, I believe they left her afloat because they couldn't find the heart to sink her. She's a beauty, he murmured, and he whistled as he looked aloft and around. I take the second mate's view, said Captain Parry. He now made the tour of the schooner. He went forward and looked into the men's deck-house, then dropped into the little forecastle and peered round him. When he regained the deck, he saw a seaman climbing the fore-rigging, with a binocular glass slung over his shoulder. He watched him till a man had reached the royal yard, over which he threw his leg, with his back against the sun-bright mast. The seaman began to sweep the sea slowly and critically. "'Good God!' thought Captain Parry, with a sudden heart-leap. If the boat is afloat, or has not been picked up, we ought to fall in with her. The noise of the breeze was in his ears. A glad sense of motion came to him from the quick salt seething alongside. His heart leapt up, but in a minute all was dark again within him, with the horrible dread that Violet had been murdered by the men before they quitted the schooner. The large, comfortable longboat had been lifted out of its chocks and was gone. Captain Parry noticed, however, that two good boats hung in the davits on either hand. He was impatient to learn the directions given by Captain Barrington, but Mr. Blundell was busy with the ship's affairs just then. He had to appoint a cook and see to the dinner. He had to arrange for a masthead lookout that should be brief under that broiling eye of day. They were few, and it taxed his genius as a sailor to make the most of them. At last he found some time to spare. A sailor was left to trudge a lookout, one at the helm made two, 
one of the royal yard made three the cook was the fourth and the boy was left to stand by captain parry followed the mate into the cabin and whilst blundell went into his berth for the chart of the atlantic the captain stood looking about him and thinking she had sat there or there he thought at table it was so recent the very fragrance of her might be found in the atmosphere how often had her feet trodden those steps he saw her in imagination reading she poured upon some volume under that golden globe with her hair illuminated he thought of her agony of heart when she rushed on deck at the sound of firearms and saw her father the captain and mate lying dead and knew that she was alone with a crew of murderers this is how captain barrington hopes will work it sir said blundell coming out of captain glue's berth and putting a chart upon the table he also produced a pair of compasses and a nautical instrument for measuring distances he pulled a paper covered with calculations from his pocket and placed it by his side this will be it i think sir said blundell sticking a leg of the compass into the chart where the point of this leg is we were when we parted company with the alfred we allow the boat a start of thirty-six hours remembering always that our weather will have been hers quite so exclaimed captain parry devouring every word i am now heading continued the mate with a glance at the paper to arrive at this point here he put the pencil end of the compasses upon the chart when we arrive there our navigation will be this he now with great care and constant references to the paper of figures together with a frequent use of the nautical instruments for measuring distances described a number of circles these circles lay one within another and when completed they might be likened to a cone-shaped spring or to a corkscrew looked at vertically you will perceive captain parry said the mate that the distance between each circle is the same how far can a man see from the schooner's royal yard well captain barrington would not allow that he should be able to see so small an object as a boat even with a good telescope at a greater distance than thirteen miles thirteen miles to port and thirteen to starboard each circle therefore is twenty-six miles wide if the boat is afloat exclaimed captain parry viewing the discs with admiration full of hope she must positively be within one of these circles unless she has taken a breeze and blown clear or means to come running into the inner whilst we're steering our dead best for the outer circles what chance do we stand frankly sir the smallest chance that ever was found at sea answered the young mate rolling up his chart the horrible consideration with me said captain parry is that the young lady may not be in the boat mr blundell looked slowly round the cabin but made no answer what do you think exclaimed parry if we fall in with the boat shall we find miss vanderholt in her the mate mused toyed a bit with the chart rolling and unrolling it then said from what i overheard the mate say about the entry the young lady made in the log-book i should argue that the men had been using her civilly from the time of the mutiny that's in her favour sir parry eyed him intently all the shrewdness in blundell's brain was working in his face sharpening his gaze and pinching lips and nose into a lifted look of eagerness whilst he talked there seems to have been no trouble aboard this vessel he continued until the mutiny took place that should signify that the men taking them all round were steady as sailors go no doubt they'd got something in the nova scotia way in their captain he appears to have been one of those captains who after draining the blood out of men's veins 
runs gunpowder in, then applies the fuse. Everybody's aghast at the bloody business, but it's one man's doing. You believe that they would not use violence towards Miss Vanderholt? Until I knew, I could never persuade myself that they'd make away with her. They are men. I dare say they were demons whilst they fought, and thought of the cause of their fighting. I'll not believe that, as English seamen, they'd kill the poor lady. She's a living witness against them. They'll have heaped oath upon oath upon her, sir. Likely as not, they'll put her aboard something passing, themselves going away and waiting for the next ship. God grant it! exclaimed Captain Parry. It's the first bit of hope that's come to me since we fell in with the schooner. End of chapter 8